who I am, uh, uh, I think. Um, uh, but I'm Emerson Wickwire. I'm the only non-pulmonologist in our division. I'm a psychologist by training, a biobehaviorally trained psychologist, but really a sleep disorder specialist. And for those of you um, maybe that I haven't spoken to as much, my background was actually in sports. Uh, I went to graduate school thinking I wanted to be a sports psychologist. My first love was amateur wrestling. And I stumbled into sleep medicine and uh, trained um, at Hopkins. And then I started a comprehensive sleep medicine center and now uh, primarily do research, which I vowed I'd never do. So this talk, uh, which I vowed I'd never do, but I'm absolutely having as much fun um, now as I have in 20 years in terms of my work life, uh, really since I was coaching wrestling full time. <clears throat> so this talk um, uh, blends uh, experience really from each of those uh, phases of my professional life. The other thing that I want to mention um, is the catalyst for this talk was actually a discussion that we all had probably just about eight weeks ago. Um, it was whenever uh, Dr. Shaw, uh, whenever Nero was in Grenada, that call is what um, sort of motivated me to, uh, or inspired me, frankly, to put a few of these thoughts together. Um, during that call, for those of you who don't remember, during that faculty meeting, um, Nerv was in Grenada. You could see his hotel room in the back. He was on, obviously, a Zoom call. Um, and he just offered a few words uh, to paraphrase. He, he said, come on, guys, this is what we trained for. We can do this. And, um, and, and I thought that was awesome. That, uh, that motivated me and that inspired me. And just a sense of positivity and optimism and, uh, and grit and focus, that was great. Uh, after the meeting that day, we were all, it was the last time we all met together. We were in Packer Pratt. So I was walking from Packer Pratt afterwards to the car and Stella called and she said, I've got an idea about a survey. Would you work with me on this? And um, I was, that's just positive initiative, right? Right uh, sort of at the onset of a period of high stress. So it was those two examples that inspired me to, um, to put some of these thoughts down and, uh, and it's actually been quite well received. Um, I think I have an op-ed coming out in USA Today, today or tomorrow. I don't know, they asked me to submit it, hopefully it gets published. So this topic really matters and it really matters uh, as evidenced by uh, the first three or four or five questions that came up just before we got started. It's, it's impacting everyone. Um, so with that being said, um, I think I'm supposed to include disclosures. None of them are pertinent to what we're talking about today. Most important thing that we need to do to maintain um, mental health during a period of high stress is uh, maintain perspective. And what I mean by that is really very much like uh, swimming, particularly open water swimming for any of you who have done that. And what I want you to imagine, this is a photograph from, um, from a family trip. That's my son, uh, for those of you who haven't met him. And so you'll notice that I'm including things that are uh, meaningful and positive to me, okay? Uh, which is what we all should be doing. That's another really important stress management strategy. This is uh, from a, um, a trip we took last Christmas. And um, 
when you swim in the open water, or if you haven't swum in the open water, I'd like you to imagine that uh, most of your time and effort and energy are expended with your face down. Uh, and you're paddling with your face in the water and you can't quite see where you're going. And every so often you look up to make sure that you're still heading towards your target on shore, uh, towards the lighthouse, if you will. And in periods of high stress, that's pretty much what we're doing now. Uh, most of our time and energy and effort is spent um, in the weeds. And what we need to remember is that we are actually moving in a direction and uh, that direction, even though we don't know exactly what it's gonna look like, will have a positive outcome, okay? So maintain perspective. Recognize that most of what we're doing is focused on the mundane and the tasks, um, but that we're moving in a direction and every so often we need to check in and, and remind ourselves of that direction. And in fact, we can even influence that direction by asking questions to ourselves like, um, if I could have anything be different at the end of coronavirus, what might that be? What is a skill? What is a self-management strategy? What is a family experience um, that I would like to have at the end of coronavirus that maybe I don't have yet or that, um, uh, that I don't have as fully developed yet? Those are the kinds of questions we can use to keep ourselves on track. Anyone recognize, and you can um, feel free to chime in uh, or use the chat um, uh, function. Anyone recognize this photograph? Seabiscuit. Um, Seabiscuit uh, was a famous horse. You may have uh, read Lauren Hillenbrand's book or seen the movie with uh, Tobey Maguire, um, who is this undersized, sort of unassuming, easy to uh, underestimate and dismiss horse um, uh, in, the, in the 30s, right, following the Great Depression, who was uh, a sort of remarkable uh, champion thoroughbred. And those are really good books and it's an entertaining movie too. And the reason that I wanted to um, include a photograph of a horse is to ask you, if you owned um, an animal like this, what would you do to take care of it? And uh, we won't discuss this in detail, but I suspect that you would do things like make sure it's eating healthy food, make sure that it is um, exercised uh, regularly and appropriately, both accounting for strength building in terms of intensity of exercise, as well as uh, accounting for rest and recuperation. Um, and that's what we need to be doing for ourselves. Everything doesn't need to be uh, rocket science. Um, you take care of the animal in a certain way, take care of yourself in that certain way as well. Second thing uh, that I want to touch base on is just what happens in our bodies during periods of stress, acute stress uh, and or chronic stress. Now I'm gonna um, really oversimplify here very broad literatures and the literatures that I know the most are um, sleep and pain and anxiety and depression and trauma. Now those interact or overlap with stresses associated uh, ironically with chronic pulmonary diseases as well. Okay. So when we talk about stress and what this flat line represents is really just an aggregate of stress 
measures of physiologic stress measures. We can look at respiratory rate, we can look at pupillometry, we can look at galvanized skin response. For those of you who are younger, um, GSR was for a long time a gold standard physiologic measurement, looking at changes in electrical uh, activity in the skin. We can look at fMRI. All of these are proxies for stress and for here, uh, for our purposes, I'm just representing these in the flat line. Now, along comes uh, a perceived threat. And what we want is a robust physiologic engagement. These are short-term stress hormones, adrenaline, for example, that really engage us. This is flight or fight or freeze. And then what we want is a rapid return to baseline. So a healthy stress response is defined by um, uh, a rapid engagement and an efficient and effective disengagement uh, to return to our baseline relaxed state. Now, what ends up happening uh, in patients with chronic sleep troubles, in patients with chronic pain, in patients with chronic pulmonary diseases or anxiety or depression uh, or trauma is it, that the stress response changes where um, because essentially the, the button's been pressed too much, the lever's been pressed too much, the physiologic response is weakened and the return to baseline is slowed. So we end up spending most of our time in this sort of chronic inflamed state where I'm not really engaged, but I'm also not fully disengaged. And what we need to do is dampen down that physiologic hyperarousal. I've been working, personally, I've been working at home, I think this is week eight, so I need to get up and move around uh, often. I pulled out my stretching bands and, and so on and so forth. Um, you want to maintain flexibility, physical flexibility, cognitive flexibility, emotional flexibility. Chronic disease is defined in, in aging for that matter or defined in large part by the loss of flexibility. In other words, um, when we think about uh, worry, which came up in five out of five questions before we got started. Worry represents a restrictive range of cognition, right? I'm perseverating on negative outcomes. When we think about depression, for example, um, uh, the range of emotional responses has narrowed so that I'm experiencing, let's say, primarily negative affect or the absence of positive affect. Uh, if you think about chronic pain or chronic pulmonary diseases for that matter, there's a restricted range, not only of lung function, but also of ambulation. Um, so, so we need to stay relaxed so that we can stay flexible. Relaxation is the number one, um, uh, uh, or lack of relaxation, uh, tension um, is the number one performance killer uh, in competitive situations, in high performance professional situations, and even in terms of uh, mental health and health and self-care. So deep breathing, um, uh, always appreciate the chance to talk to uh, my colleagues, a team of pulmonologists about the importance of breathing, but we all fall into the same trap where our breathing uh, focuses mostly behind our sternum rather than behind our belly button. The kinds of strategies that you may uh, teach patients, in other words, to really focus on diaphragmatic breathing and breathing into the full volume of our lungs works wonders for ourselves as well. A few of the questions that came up earlier uh, had to do with worry. And what I want to do here is, is simply outline um, 
a process that you can use to dampen down worry. Worry comes from uncertainty, fear uh, um, of the future, fear of, of the unknown. And worry thrives with ambiguity. Um, worry uh, does not do well when we get specific. So if you feel anxious and to be alive on planet Earth right now is to inhale a certain kind of um, constant uncertainty or, or, or anxiousness, um, uh, this is impacting everyone, uh, in my opinion. Those are non-specific feelings. And what we want to do to reduce them is to make them very, very concrete. So for example, if you're a trainee, uh, and I'm making these up, of course, but um, maybe you are afraid that your next professional opportunity isn't going to manifest itself. One of my um, medicine fellow mentees is dealing with exactly that issue. A little bit of loss of communication all of a sudden from uh, presumptive employer, whatever that fear is, name it, be very specific. And uh, recognize that what we wanna do is not eliminate the fear, but feel less of it. So to use the example of an employer or a loss of finances, what we wanna do are start brainstorming other strategies that we can take. So to use the same example of, I'm concerned about my future employment or my uh, cash flow or whatever it may be, um, okay, recognize that the goal is to feel less fear about cash flow or about future employment uh, or, or um, whichever example you want to use. And then the next thing we do is we cast a really, really wide net um, for uh, alternative solutions to what we might do. For example, well, I pound the pavement and find another job. I'd apply for unemployment. Uh, I would call um, anyone that I know who may be able to loan me uh, uh, some money to help me bridge the gap. Whatever the solutions are, brainstorm as many, of, as many of them as you possibly can and don't evaluate whether they're realistic or not. What you want to do is generate as many possibilities um, as you can. You'll evaluate them in the next step. Remember that what we're trying to do is to counteract that restricted um, focus of our thinking. So come up with as broad a range of possibilities as you can. And then at that point, you can evaluate the pros and the cons and the risks. Um, and when necessary, take action uh, and reward yourself to maintain momentum. The kinds of changes that uh, Van and Danielle, oh, I'm sorry. The, the kinds of changes that Van and Danielle and John Williams and um, mm -hmm. I can't remember who else uh, asked about earlier, all have to do with what I call a cognitive to behavioral shift. In other words, um, how do we do the things that we know are healthy for us? And it's not that we don't know. Everyone on the call is bright and has advanced training and um, we're not talking about rocket science. But what we are talking about is actually doing the things that we know that will help take better care of us and ultimately improve our lives, okay? One important strategy for doing that is to reward yourself. Now, this photograph here is um, of a woman named Carol Semple Thompson that you've uh, probably never uh, heard of unless you're um, a woman's golf fan. Carol was a friend of my family and worked uh, with my dad uh, when I was a boy. She's the most successful um, woman 
uh, amateur woman golfer um, in history on the planet. She's the only individual man or woman to have ever been a U.S. amateur champion and a British amateur champion in, um, in the same year. Uh, she played on 12 World uh, Curtis Cup teams. She's just a remarkable athlete and, uh, and a gracious person. And when I was young, girl, when I was younger, uh, and I was interested in sports and performance psychology for my career, I called her and I said, Carol, um, I'd love to take you out to lunch and just talk a little bit about golf and your career and so forth. And she was gracious enough um, to host me. So um, what she told me, and I basically said, as I, as I do with people I respect, uh, I said, how did you do this? And um, what lessons can I apply to my own life that were useful for you? What she told me was starting in the early 1970s, which is decades ahead of the sports science literature, she was working with what we now call a sports psychologist, although he had no credentials, and she was using visualization tapes. This was decades before these strategies started appearing in the academic literature. And the thing that she needed to focus on was you cannot have any image in your brain of slicing the ball out of bounds. There can be no negative thoughts at all. You need to practice buttressing your brain from the intrusion of negative thoughts. And at the same time, you need to be your own biggest champion. And those strategies uh, work for all of us. If we had more time, I'd ask for uh, individual examples. But my guess is that each of us can think of a time, uh, I hope that you can, think of a time when you were supportive of yourself and it always improves performance. The topic of mindfulness came up earlier, and um, uh, worry is all about focusing on what if. So remember, by definition, worry is about function that has not happened yet. These are, uh, these are outcomes that haven't happened yet. They're in the future. And so the entire mindfulness approach or mindfulness uh, movement that's really obviously expanded over the last 50 years or so uh, in the West because of John Kabat-Zinn, has to do with focusing on what is. So the reason why, for example, with my insomnia patients or even with my sleep apnea patients, we practice focusing on what are you feeling in, um, in your skin and what are you hearing. Uh, um, the reason we close our eyes is because we process so much sensory information that by closing our eyes, uh, it generally increases our ability to use our other senses. It's to ground ourselves where we are in space and time. So right now you are on this uh, webinar and by 520 or as soon as Carl runs us through, uh, or Jeff runs us through the weekly update, you'll be wherever you are at that point in time. Mindfulness is all about where you are, what is, at the expense of what if. Okay, the last thing that I'll share with you about mindfulness, and there are multiple good apps. There are three that I generally recommend um, uh, to patients. Um, mindfulness is ironically very behavioral, and I learned this perspective from one of my uh, preceptors uh, as our resident, uh, who was um, uh, a remarkably interesting guy. He'd been sort of a CIA spy type and was. Uh, very involved in Zen. I uh, had lived in Japan for 20 years and that was a total genius. Uh, and he had written, so I want to kind of give him credit for introducing me to this idea about the importance of mindfulness and behavioral psychology. 
And behavioral psychology um, believes that in addition to uh, biological factors and so forth, the prime driver of behavior is environmental reinforcement. Okay, if something tastes good, I eat more of it. If the stove is hot, I don't touch it again next time. And by focusing on where I am in space and time, it actually increases the salience of, um, of environmental cues and therefore increases their behaviorally reinforcing properties. Let's talk a little bit about sleep. Um, sleep is uh, physiologic and psychologic resilience, particularly under stress. The Millennium Cohort studies um, over the past 20 years have assessed uh, serially over 200,000, I believe, uh, active duty service members, you know, veterans, reservists, and military personnel. And there have been a number of different cohorts and waves in the study. Um, the wave that I'm referring to had to do, uh, it was looking at resilience factors pre, during, and, and post deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan. So over 15,000 uh, active duty service members in, these, in, this, in this cohort essentially completed baseline questionnaires uh, at multiple points in time. And then they were looking at mental health outcomes was the primary dependent variable of interest. So um, these are new cases. So just to define the dependent variables there on the right of your screen, these are new cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, new cases of anxiety, uh, new cases of depressive disorders. And um, poor sleep at baseline worsens mental health outcomes. If you look uh, in terms of post-traumatic stress, not getting enough sleep, which is um, uh, widespread uh, among healthcare workers, uh, having insomnia, which means symptoms of insomnia, self-reported in this study, which means having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, and trauma exposure um, significantly predict uh, new PTSD events. Same thing um, with anxiety. Now, uh, in terms of depression, uh, if you look at the adjusted risk ratio, which is the number on the right of the slash, you'll see that insomnia is actually a stronger predictor of new onset depression than is exposure to combat trauma, okay? So what do we do uh, to manage arousal? And the first thing I'll encourage you to do is to create rituals. Um, think about being busy during the day and whether you're working at home or whether you're uh, in your office or at the hospital, what we need to do is draw a line in the sand, a behavioral marker that'll vary. You can make up your own here, but what, what, uh, what I want to encourage you to do is be very purposeful about it. To end your day, for example, shut off your email. And now once my email is shut off, things are different. I'm no longer focusing on email kinds of tasks. This might be family time, this might be leisure time, this might be when you uh, pick up the guitar or go for a walk or play catch with your dog, whatever else it is that, um, that you're gonna do in this buffer zone between your peak uh, productivity of, of your busy day um, and really when you start to wind down before sleep. And so not surprisingly to end uh, the unwind period and to transition out of unwind, add another behavioral marker. So for example, first thing that maybe I do is I shut off my work email, and then a couple hours later, I'm actually gonna go ahead and shut off my TV. 
And I'm going to end the next phase uh, by brushing my teeth or putting on my uh, PJs or nightgown, whatever it might be. Okay. Maintain consistency. Uh, maintain a regular schedule. Uh, bedroom environment should be cool, dark, quiet, and uncluttered. We talked a little bit about um, pre-sleep routine. Reduce technology in part because of blue emitting light that you probably know suppresses melatonin and delays sleep onset, and also because the pundits aren't, aren't good for you. Media personalities uh, are paid very well to engage and enrage. I've spoken with uh, seven, eight, 10,000 uh, individuals about their sleep, and I've never met one for whom the news is relaxing. So stop consuming social media and news late in the evening. Another major resilience factor Cultivate positive emotion. Focus on things that make you feel good, that make you experience emotions like optimism, gratitude, um, uh, happiness, flow, even physical exertion. These um, small experiences of positive feelings, there's a, there's an, for those who don't know, there's an entire field called positive psychology, which focuses on uh, human flourishing, let's say, and, and optimal functioning as opposed to disease, which um, obviously occupies, that's how we all make our living, by focusing on disease. But focusing on the inverse of disease is um, uh, illustrative. And what we know, this is called the broaden and build theory of positive emotions, is that even a small positive feeling can begin to change the way that I'm thinking and the way that I'm behaving, thereby increasing uh, the flexibility that we were talking about earlier. Maintain a gratitude list. Um, uh, I've enjoyed one of the ways that I'm coping. We have a six-year-old and a new puppy who's asleep here. Maybe I'll show them in a little bit. Um, uh, one of the ways that I'm coping is finding um, my wife and I both work, okay, for those of you who don't know us. And uh, we have a six-year-old boy, kindergartner, and I'm working at off hours. It's about the only way I can get anything done. And sometimes that's really nice. Um, uh, went for a walk with my son. This actually is an example. He's a couple weeks old. You know, he pulls me over to say, Dad, look at the water droplets on the grass at 7.30 in the morning. And if you can't enjoy those kinds of moments, um, you know, you probably need more than this webinar in terms of uh, what are we doing here on the planet. Um, okay, I love working out in my office. I've, since I'm doing all these Zooms, uh, I move things so that you're no longer seeing my computer printer, but you're now seeing my backyard and even just the chance to be here today. What are you grateful for? Cultivate positive emotions. As a quick aside, we don't have time to get into the physiology of uh, emotion and sleep on the call, there's actually a robust relationship between positive emotion and sleep and some evidence that, in, that uh, experimentally induced positive emotion uh, can improve uh, sleep. I'm, I'm happy to talk offline about that. If you haven't watched the Kaminsky Method, uh, strongly recommend it. It's not a pitch for Netflix, but it is a pitch uh, to do things that you enjoy and find ways to laugh, even just find ways to smile. Okay, so what I want to do here, rather than offer um, suggestions, is, um, is ask you, what have you been doing to stay connected? It's eight weeks, uh, we're eight weeks in. What's everyone, uh, what's everyone been doing? How 
can't even stand connected. Oops. Weekly Zoom with friends. Thanks, Van. Pom CC, CCM. Weekly Zoom with friends. I'm curious for suggestions. Weekly games via Zoom. Nice. What kind of games, John? Instagram. <laughs> uh, uh, the reason I'm laughing is I have an Instagram account and I've never used it. Um, Farkle Dice and Jackbox. Cool. Uh, things for me to check out. Others. What have you been doing? Zoom-based trivia. Nice. That's fun. Um, I think Sophia Job does Zoom-based trivia as well. Uh, same. Oh, nice. I wonder if you guys are uh, uh, competitors or teammates. Um, I, I will tell you one thing that I did. Um, ah, Sophia says, yes, I do. Uh, I will tell you one thing that I did. I went to high school um, uh, to a, a smaller school. We graduated, I think, with 90 or somewhere between 90 and 100. And next year's our reunion year. I won't tell you what year. Um, and we had a reunion Zoom. We had 80 people. 80 people on a Zoom last Saturday night. And I have to tell you, um, of all of the uh, sort of social connectedness activities that, that we've experimented with in the last eight weeks, that was the most powerful. The call went four hours. It was, it, it was really just great. Um, so stay connected. Don't let yourself get isolated. Uh, even if you think you're resilient and tough and, uh, and prefer um, uh, to, to sort of play a misanthrope, don't let yourself get isolated. It's a huge risk for adverse mental health outcomes. What about in terms of staying productive? Um, I've worked with a few of you uh, um, in a similar capacity using this approach. You need to figure out what your priorities are. And um, the more senior that you uh, become, the more you need to aggressively discard what does not fit in your priorities. Um, if you're, uh, as you are, uh, really sort of clarifying what those priorities are or earlier in your career, um, it's a good idea to say yes to a lot, uh, but you need to be clear on why you're saying. For example, um, we do methodologically really two things. We do remote monitoring and telehealth and we do big data analyses. Um, uh, this year, I'm also focusing on getting the good word out about what we're doing. And really for me, by far the most um, important area of my life is my is my family life. So what are those uh, for you? Um, and discard everything that uh, that doesn't fit in there. Okay. Um, uh, can you discard it or delegate it? Uh, does it move the needle on one of your areas? Um, and then breaking it down to the level of, of specific tasks. What about staying productive at home? Earlier, we talked about schedules in terms of uh, sleep, same thing in terms of daytime productivity. Rhythm is um, uh, potentially even more important than sleep, frankly. Uh, I think that that'll, over the next 20, 30 years, become even more evident. Be comfortable. Uh, I'm in the process of buying a new home office chair, for example, because I have a lousy old IKEA office chair. And um, I wish I would have done this a few months ago, now that I've spent uh, several hundred hours uh, in this chair. Make sure that you're comfortable. Um, clarify, what's the purpose of time? Is this a peak productivity time or is this a downtime? And keep those distinct, okay? Take regular breaks like we talked about. Stay flexible. 
So what I'd encourage you to do, uh, whether it's on the pad and paper or Microsoft Word, however you're um, sort of tracking things, uh, identify several of the tasks that you need to focus on to prepare for a comeback. Because as we mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier, things will be better in the future. They'll be in all likelihood different in ways that we can't totally predict, although you probably have a few good ideas. I think we're at a watershed moment in terms of uh, telehealth and, and so forth. Um, what are things that you can do that are under your control that regardless of what happens with coronavirus um, are important for you to be succeeding in the future, right? Okay. Um, I want to close by just telling you um, a few things that we're doing uh, in terms of sleep research and how we're adjusting. Uh, we're bringing on a new um, research staff. She's going to onboard totally remotely and work sort of remotely, uh, who knows how long, as long as the rest of us. Um, we're switching our studies to totally um, remote recruitment. And so we're working with the IRBs, uh, both at Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir and here in Maryland um, to update our protocols. So we will recruit, we will consent, we will enroll, we will administer everything remotely. Um, I'll tell you more about one of those projects in just a sec. And frankly, we're lucky, and I wanna share, um, we've just had two studies funded. Um, one of these has to do specifically with uh, sleep and resilience following traumatic brain injury. This is secondary data analysis of a large, um, what's called U Award, which is essentially a $30 million uh, NIH grant uh, that serially assessed over 3,000 patients from the 12 or 13 leading trauma centers in the United States at four points in time over 12 months. And there's a very robust battery of uh, measures, uh, physiologic measures, neuroimaging, blood biomarkers, proteomic, genomic, and so forth, as well as 27 outcome measures, including sleep. And so what we are doing in this study is we're looking at trajectories, essentially of insomnia, of trouble sleeping over those 12 months and relating insomnia trajectories uh, to outcomes. So we are in a, in a really nifty way looking at sleep as a resilience factor following brain injury. Just yesterday, um, uh, we had a study funded and uh, Dr. Versalles, I'm not sure if Avalon was on the call, um, but I want to give a shout out to him uh, for his help and, and overseeing, um, uh, and overseeing uh, the measurement of uh, functional outcomes. Um, we are going to be using remote monitoring to study cognition uh, in older adults with sleep problems with insomnia and uh, an obstructive sleep apnea. And, in and we'll tell you more about this study over time because we'd love to help you, of course, help us um, uh, recruit. But in general, the drawback of uh, most studies is that we only assess patients a finite number of times. We have sort of a pre-measurement and a post-measurement. But in this study, um, what we're doing is we're measuring patients throughout the day. So instead of having two measures per participant, we're actually having 56 measures per participant over a 14-day period. So we can really look at much more dynamic changes um, within subjects in addition to uh, between groups. We'll tell you more about it. So um, maintain perspective, uh, take care of yourself, uh, stay engaged, stay engaged with 
uh, with your families, with your support networks, um, uh, and with your professional lives as well. And Van, with that, um, I'll turn things back over to you. I'm happy to answer questions.